0: Hello, I'm Noel Lim on ASEAN Speaks by Maybank. As sentiment on Chinese property stocks lifted last week, what is the outlook for bonds? We also unpack our latest reports on Philippines' remittances, ASEAN equity strategy, Thailand's telco spectrum, and our forecasts on Vietnamese banks. Chua Hak Bin, co-head of Macro, discusses with the analysts.
1: Hey, hi, good morning. 22nd August. Uh, just a quick recap on last week, the MSCI World Equity Index fell 1.6% snapping four consecutive weeks of gains. NASDAQ fell 2.6%, while the Bloomberg Galaxy crypto index plunged by 13% on a week. ASEAN markets were more resilient, while Hong Kong markets were down by about 2%. China issued a drought alert on Friday, a warning sign that the recovery in the second half is not on solid ground, and that climate change may disrupt supply chains to keep food prices elevated. Uh, This week, all eyes on the Fed Chair Powell on his speech on Friday at the Kansas City Fed Annual Monetary Policy Symposium at Jackson Hole. The prelim PMI data for the US and Eurozone will be a focus. Eurozone PMI may show the private sector contracting the most since February last year. In Asia, central banks in South Korea and Asia will hold their central bank meetings. Jue is expecting the bank in Asia to initiate its first rate hike. Singapore will be reporting its July CPI inflation industrial production this week. A strong inflation print uh, could mean that the MAS may have to tighten yet again with a stronger SING dollar, even after four rounds of tightening. Prime Minister Lee in his National Day Rally speech last night announced that Singapore will no longer require masks uh, except for public transport and healthcare settings. Some of the companies reporting earnings this week include AIA, Sinuk, Meituan, PetroChina, Ping An Insurance, Sinopac, Qantas, Woolworth, and Zoom. Today, we have uh, Winson on China property and RMP bonds, Jue on Thailand 2Q GDP, Zamros on the Philippine Central Bank, rate Heights last week, Anan on his latest ASEAN strategy report, Wasu on Thailand's uh, telco merger and a fight over spectrum rights, and Tan on his two favorite Vietnam banks. So let's kick off first with uh, Winson. Vincent, China property bonds and stocks moved higher last week on hopes that the government will provide more supportive measures. Can you update on the onshore and offshore bond market moves? What are some of these measures and possible restructuring? And are these large enough uh, to make a difference and provide a backstop to the China property crisis and prices?
2: Hi, morning, Habin. Yeah, the regulator has been um, having piecemeal policy support and the latest one being um, asking the state-owned China bond insurance company to provide guarantee for selected developers on some of their bond offerings onshore. And the first batch of the names mentioned uh, on the news include, for example, Longfor, Shizhen, Gemdel, uh, Country Garden. And I think this measure is quite important in order to avoid contagion effect because recently there has been sign of uh, stress deepening on China property developers' uh, Spreading from junk to high grade names. For example, Longfall, uh, being one of the top 10 names uh, by sales and is also quite highly rated at triple P flat, has seen its stock and dollar bond prices plunging in recent weeks since July. So, given the sign of policy support, market sentiment has reacted positively. The dollar bond, uh, China property bond prices jump. Uh, not just for the developers that will benefit from the measure, Uh, it also includes other names that are not uh, mentioned on the news, uh, for example, Wanke and uh, China, Jingmao. And certainly the government does recognize that a prolonged liquidity crunch for property developers could affect housing completions and if not properly addressed, it could actually evolve into a, a major social problem. But I think uh, the key question is um, how long and how big this measure will be. Uh, even though the near-term uh, reaction is uh, positive, eventually we'll need to assess the extent of this support. Like uh, what, is, what is it going to be the size of the bond issuance? How many developers will actually benefit? And also the length of the support. I would say um, we need to be careful because this measure alone may not be a game changer.
1: Vincent, on the overall CNY bonds, the RMB has been weakening and is now near its one-year low against the US dollar. The PBOC surprise, however, with an interest rate cut. So what are the flows and what's your recommendation currently on CNY bonds?
2: Yeah, last week, the PBOC announced a surprise rate cut by 10 bp on both the seven-day reverse report rate and also the one-year MLF rate. And I think this week, they will follow with additional 10-bit cut on the loan prime rates on potentially both the one-year and five-year tenor. We are mildly bullish on China government bonds, on growing concern about the China macro, um, and also prolonged structural weakness in the property sector. Because eventually, if this spread to uh, the credit risk onshore, it will actually increase the heaven demand for the China government bonds. On the year-to-date basis, we have seen huge foreign outflows, but they are a teething signs of stabilization with foreign net inflow into the China government bond in July. This is actually the first inflow in five months since January. A yield differential is has narrowed between the US Treasuries and also China government bonds. FX spot, um, dollar CNY also higher. But if you look at the FX forward points, it, it is actually negative. So that means investor, foreign investor investing in CMY bonds can actually get you picked up. But of course, speaking of China bonds, we need to differentiate between the government bonds and also the credit bonds, especially uh, the US dollar credit. So on US dollar credit, I think we still need to be careful and very selective because some of the developers um, they may con- continue to struggle despite the policy support and bond restructuring for defaulted names may be a long-drawn process and the regulator may potentially prioritize home buyers over over the creditors.
1: Okay, thanks, Vincent. Let's move on to Jue. Thailand released a second quarter GDP last week, which um, fell below expectations. What are the key highlights?
0: Good morning, everyone. Yeah, uh, Thailand's second quarter GDP growth uh, came in below expectations uh, at just 2.5%. Uh, below both consensus and our estimates of above 3% growth. Uh, So Thailand is still the laggard among ASEAN 6. It's it's the only economy in the region where 2Q GDP remains below uh, 2Q19 levels by around 3.2%. Uh, some highlights would be um, that household consumption uh, accelerated by 6.9 percent uh, driven by the reopening tailwind that boosted spending and services uh, particularly in restaurants and hotels and recreation and culture uh, but investment fell by one percent uh, weighed down by public investment due to a lack of major new projects and private investment also eased because of the fall in imports of industrial machinery uh, following the weaker but Uh, Net exports of goods and services swung to a huge deficit as export growth eased while imports gained momentum. Uh, Overall, the NESDC narrowed its 2022 GDP growth forecast to 2.7 to 3.2% from the previous 2.5 to 3.5%. We are maintaining our forecast at 3.2% for this year. Uh, This implies that growth will pick up to around 4% in the second half compared to 2.4% in the first half. And that's uh, partly due to the lower base in the second half of last year uh, because of the delta wave outbreak. And also we think that the uptick in tourist arrivals and continued rebound in private consumption will help to offset easing goods exports because of weakening global demand.
1: So, the Thai BART has been uh, strengthening of late from its lows despite this week's uh, GDP print. What do you think is driving the BART recovery? And do you think the tourism recovery still has legs and can surprise on upside for the rest of the year and next year?
0: Yeah, the BART has indeed outperformed this month. Uh, and this is because of optimism uh, surrounding the rebound in tourism and also uh, the expected narrowing in current account deficit as uh, oil prices are falling and Thailand is a net oil importer. Uh, The government is expecting 10 million tourists this year. Uh, That's around one quarter of uh, 2019 levels. Uh, And as of mid-August, the year-to-date number was tracking at 4 million. And the top source markets have been regional countries like Malaysia, India, and Singapore. Uh, The tourism recovery may surprise on the the upside, especially if China, uh, which accounts for nearly one-third of visitor arrivals, uh, eases restrictions towards the end of the year. Uh, But despite the rebound in tourists, the current account uh, recorded a wide deficit of 4.3% of GDP in the first half of this year, uh, because of large remittance of uh, profits by foreign firms. And we uh, estimate that every 4 million tourists add around 1% of GDP to the current account uh, via the tourism revenue. Uh, And to achieve a, a balanced current account in the second half of the year, uh, that implies around 10 million tourists would be needed in the second half alone, uh, which is higher than the 8 million needed to hit the government's target. Uh, next year, the government is looking at 30 million tourists, uh, and that should definitely swing the current account into a healthy surplus.
1: Great, thanks, Jay. Um, Zamros, the Philippine Central Bank BSB hiked by another 50 bits last week. The BSB has been one of the most hawkish central banks alongside Singapore's MES. What are the drivers driving the rate hike, and is there still more to go? Uh,
3: hi, morning. Have been uh, morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, BSP uh, last week uh, raised the uh, policy rate by fifty basis point. Uh, we pushed the uh, policy rate to three point seven five percent, and this was the fourth rate hike so far this year, with a total one hundred and seventy five basis point rate hike uh, after the massive uh, seventy five basis point. Uh, hike by BSP in uh, July so we think that the uh, the there are three factors that uh, what makes the uh, BSP to be one of the uh, uh, hawkish central banks in the region firstly is on uh, inflation itself uh, inflation uh, has been uh, for five months now uh, uh, staying above uh, the uh, BSPs target range of between two uh, to four uh, percent in July inflation was 6.4 uh, percent. Uh, which makes the uh, year to date inflation now at 4.7%. So, clearly, the focus by BSP is on uh, anchoring inflation expectations. Uh, the second point is on the uh, GDP, the economy itself. Uh, the uh, BSP is taking the view that the economy is able to absorb uh, rate hikes by uh, BSP. Uh, we know that uh, GDP expanded in the second quarter by uh, 7.4% year on year and the first quarter by 8.2% year-on-year, year, which makes the uh, first half of this year, uh, the Philippines economy expanded by 7.8% year-on-year. Year. Uh, this is on top of the uh, stable uh, labor market in the Philippines uh, with the unemployment rate uh, for the first half of this year staying at 6.1%, uh, improvement from 7.8% uh, in uh, for, for, for 2021. Uh, then finally, uh, we think that the, uh, the rate hikes by uh, uh, BSP will help uh, the performance of uh, Peso uh, against the uh, US dollar. Uh, overall, uh, we are looking at uh, another 25 basis rate hike by BSP to push uh, the policy rate to 4% by the end of uh, this year. Rabin.
1: Yeah, Zama. So remittances have not recovered to pre-pandemic levels. You know, remittances was a key reason for driving the current account into a surplus in the Philippines before the pandemic. Is there any info or data on the proportion of Filipinos, you know, who return home during the pandemic are now starting to, uh, you know, go back overseas for work? Because I would think that demand should be high given the tight labor markets in many countries.
3: Uh, yeah. Well, actually, the uh, annual uh, overseas Filipino workers remittances uh, in twenty twenty one. Of uh, 31.4 billion US dollar. Uh, actually, it's already surpassed the pre-pandemic level. Uh, I mean, when we compare with uh, 30.1 billion US dollar in uh, 2019. Uh, this is after the 0.8 uh, percent drop uh, to 29.9 billion in 2020. And uh, after recording the uh, 15.35 billion US dollar of remittances in the first half of this year, we expect uh, full year. Uh, uh, remittances of thirty-two point three billion, or uh, US dollar, or two point eight percent growth uh, for this year. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the up-to-date official data on uh, actual numbers of uh, overseas Filipino workers uh, are lacking. Uh, but nevertheless, the uh, latest figures on the numbers of uh, OFWs uh, was released back in March this year by the Philippines uh, Statistical Agency. Uh, that is for the year twenty twenty which uh, shows that the number of workers uh, fell by 19% uh, to 1.77 uh, million mm-hmm. from 2.18 million in 2019. Uh, but nevertheless, the Philippines' uh, Overseas uh, Employment Administration uh, was uh, quoted by the media recently, uh, saying that the deployment of uh, overseas Filipino workers are slowly uh, returning to levels seen before the uh, pandem- pandemic, but unfortunately without uh, stating any specific numbers. But the thing is, the statement is consistent uh, with the recovery in remittances to surplus to surpass the uh, pre-pandemic levels since last year, uh, which uh, suggests recovery in the uh, overseas Filipino workers deployment as the global economy uh, reopens. Hey,
1: thanks, Amros. Uh, let's bring in Adam. And I think on your latest uh, ASEAN strategy report, what are the key highlights?
4: Hi, good morning, Hakben, and good morning, everyone. So it's been a relatively good fortnight uh, for ASEAN markets. We did see a a broad rally uh, across uh, all major indices. I think uh, the Philippines actually stood out as uh, one of the biggest gainers. The PSEI uh, actually gained 6% uh, over the last 10 trading days, and that's on the back of uh, more favorable macro data. Also, two key results from across the region, not just the Philippines, uh, have been largely within expectations. So that's really confirming uh, uh, the earlier thesis at the start of the year that the recovery momentum uh, in ASEAN coming out of lockdown last year is pretty strong. And we would see the results uh, coming through, uh, especially for mobility-focused sectors like consumer. Uh, And that's been the case uh, across uh, all the countries. Uh, Even in Malaysia, uh, some of the recent results we've seen from stocks like Vijaya uh, Food, uh, Carlsberg, Heineken, uh, you know, very consumer uh, sort of facing businesses. The results have been very robust. So that's been uh, another lift for
1: ASEAN markets. So Anand, what are the key changes to the top buys and top sells?
4: Yeah, I think uh, in terms of, uh, you know, rating bias, if you read through our report, you'll see there's still a bit of a positive tilt uh, to, to analyst recommendations. Uh, you know, they do see a, a lot of value in sectors like banks, uh, as well as consumer and commodities. So in this addition for the Philippines, you know we've raised the ratings for Metropolitan Bank, uh, as well as Samira Mining uh, to buy, uh, given um, uh, you know attractive valuations, we uh, service uh, growth prospects. In Singapore as well, uh, we still see value in the planters. Uh, we're a little bit more defensive now because CPO prices have corrected, uh, but for something like First Resources, uh, we have upgraded it to buy as well, uh, as we see a uh, value there. On the flip side, uh, one notable downgrade in this edition is the uh, Thai uh, consumer finance sector that's been downgraded to neutral. We do see loan growth slowing uh, and some uptick uh, in NPLs. So something like Sawad uh, we have uh, downgraded to hold uh, from buy previously, and some other notable downgrades so to hold include uh, in Singapore getting Singapore uh, as well as NetLink. These are really uh, you know downgrades not led by anything fundamental, but more because of the market rallies, we are seeing, you know, the upside to target prices being compressed quite a bit. So, you know, uh, your money, you should switch out to other stocks, which we are
1: recommending, which would give you better upside. Great, thanks, Alan. Thank you. On um, Watsu, we'll cover the the Thai telcos. So there seems to be a lot of controversy and regulatory uncertainty over the spectrum rights from the two telcos, DTAC and TRUE merger. So, also from a layman perspective, what's, uh, can you briefly highlight some main issues and controversy? Sure. So, um, there has been no official statement from the
5: regulator NBTC just yet. But a few people outside of NBTC have stated that uh, the spectrum return from the new company of True and DTAC should be in order. And uh, it should be uh, the spectrum return should be one of the conditions for the merger approval by the NBTC. And one of those people that mentioned something like that was Advance's CEO. The CEO mentioned that allowing True and DTAC to combine all of their spectrum holdings would be unfair to Advance because Advance had bid for spectrum licenses under different circumstances. Advance CEO also said that the telecom regulator has been considering a potential measure related to spectrum return from the new company so that's what we have we have heard so far on 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 the issue and in this paper I, I try to quantify the risk of the spectrum return so basically we believe that the new company can return up to uh, 55 55 megahertz of bandwidth without putting it at a disadvantage against advance uh, currently the new company has 6.5 megahertz of bandwidth per 1 million mobile subscriber giving away 55 megahertz of bandwidth would bring down the number to 5.5 megahertz per 1 million subscriber which would be on par with advances number so if if the mandate mandated spectrum return is more than 55 megahertz we may have to revisit our calculation of the cost synergies for the new company
1: so what's the, um I guess the merger will mean that the Thai telco structure will move back to a duopoly, which uh, yeah. could bring back quite a bit of pricing power uh, yes. to the remaining telcos. So, what's what's what do you think will be the final outcome? Um, you know, will there be a big, um, you know, rate increases? Uh, and which company will be the beneficiary and your top pick in the sector? Okay. So if, if, if
5: we assume that the, the merger is approved within October and the merger is completed within uh, this year, then next year 2023 would be the first year of operation for the new company. And you shouldn't expect any price increase or higher pricing power within the first year because that first year uh, 2023 would be the year that the new company will be very busy doing internal restructuring and network integration. And, and when telcos do network integration, it would be quite messy. The network quality would drop here and there, give, giving Advance the opportunities to steal market share. So I believe that in the first year of operation of the new company, the competition would still be quite strong and Advance would be the main beneficiary during the first year of operation. But from, from, the, from the second or third year onwards, maybe we, we could start to see some uh, easing competition, but do not expect easing competition in the first year. And in that first year, advance would, should be the main beneficiary. But from the third year onwards, uh, the, the new company should start to enjoy some uh, cost savings from, from the elimination of overlapping resources and also network sharing when investing in new network sites.
1: Great, thanks, Watson. You're welcome. Let's bring in Tan. So Tan, you have a special report on the Vietnam banks. How much uh, have the bank uh, share prices sold off this year and why, and do you expect any regulatory risks?
6: Uh, yeah, thanks, Happy, and good morning, everyone. Well, uh, first, I would like to reiterate our views that we maintain uh, you know, the positive view on Vietnamese banks' fundamental we see the strong credit growth between like 12 or 14%, a very robust name of 3.8 or 4% can be sustained over the next four years. So this along with the rising fee incomes in Vietnam, which thanks to both the bank assurances and other capital market services, which drive the ROA of Vietnamese bank to reach the level of 2%. And why in Vietnam, we enjoy very reasonable capital regulations so that's why banks in Vietnam can maintain very reasonable balance sheet leverage of like nine or 10 times. So these together easily help Vietnamese bank to enjoy like 20% ROE. So this view we have been maintained throughout the since last year to date, uh, but the market you know, in Vietnam, they, they don't really understand the bank's fundamentals, especially in the market dominated by retail like this. 80% of the market daily trading values from the local retail. And in the first half of the year, they were overly concerned and reacted to the, any news about like COVID and even the regulated, regulatory headwinds against the bond market. So they think that this would create the NPLs in the system and would, you know, uh, dampen banks' profit growth and, and, and ROE. But actually, banks' first half results come out very strongly. They enjoy 35% profit growth year on year and the RE continued to improve like to over 23%. And the asset quality and, and balance sheet uh, shape is very solid. So we, we just want to up, update the investor on Vietnamese bank during this time. And we reiterate the view that banks in Vietnam are still in the very high growth uh, and robust RE cycle. So it's time to buy. And in the first half of the year, because of the retail overreaction, bank share has pulled back by on average, and even some banks lost like 40 or 50%. And now it's trading at around like less than 1.4 times PB for over 20% ROE. So uh, we see that a lot of uh, good investment opportunities have emerged among Vietnamese banks. And we maintain our topics in the top three names, Techcom Bank, Vietcom Bank, and MB Bank. So Tan, could you
1: elaborate on why Techcom Bank and Vietcom Bank? your topics?
6: Uh, uh, yes, for Vietcom Bank is still the, what we call the proxy bank for Vietnam, because it is the largest market cap. It has strength in all business uh, segment. The RE is solid at 20%. And yeah, the foreign room is available. So it's a proxy bank. And if you compare Vietcom Bank to other proxy bank in the region, like Bank of Central Asia in Indonesia or HDFC in India, this kind of proxy bank always trade at between like four or five times PB. Private combine is now are traded at only 2.8 times, which is below its five-year average and below its normal uh, good time, like 3.5 to 4 times P/B. So we believe that is a very reasonable valuation for Vietcombank. Uh, for Techcombank, it's an emerging private sector bank. It has the solid fundamentals as Vietcombank. It is the bank focused on the affluent segment and the upper SME and private sector companies in Vietnam and it's a leader in the fee income generation. So everything is very comparable to Vietcom Bank and the management is committed to our target of 20%. The only thing that uh, uh, dampen is valuation is, is now the, that the foreign room ownership is, limit, uh, is full. So that's why it's fully exposed to the retail. But uh, during this time, we see that there's blocks offer and with the solid capacity to deliver 20% RE, and the valuation is now only 1.2 times PB. We see the huge, uh, you know, good investment opportunity
1: with Unity with
6: the uh, Techcom Bank.
1: Thanks, Tan. Yeah, that's all we have for uh, today. We have a good week ahead.
0: For more information, speak to your trading rep and download our reports from the Maybank Trade app and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Have a good day. I'm Noel Lim Speaks by Maybank.